first to some very contemporary dilemmas now and to a new book called Time to Think, which thoroughly investigates the rise and fall of the UK's flagship gender service for children. The Gender Identity Development Service, which is based at the respected Tavistock Clinic in North London, was initially set up to provide, for the most part, talking therapies to young people who were questioning their gender identity. But in the last decade, it's referred more than a 1,000 children, some as young as nine years old, for medication to block their puberty. Well, to walk us through the findings of three years' research charting this story, I'm pleased to welcome Hannah Barnes, a journalist with the BBC's Newsnight program and author of Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's gender service for children. Welcome to Saturday Extra. Thank you for having me. Tell us why you decided to write this book, please. Well, I had, as you say, I'd started this investigation at BBC Newsnight with my colleague Deborah Cohen, and we did sort of four films, four quite lengthy films, sort of 12 and a half minute type things, um, and written a series of articles and a radio documentary. But it got to the point where I just knew too much, and I felt that there had to be a written definitive record of what had taken place. And I think here in the UK, and I imagine the same is true there in Australia, you know, there's, if you're the average partly engaged layperson, you might think that there's no disagreement amongst clinicians about how to best care for this group of often vulnerable and distressed young people. And where there is disagreement that that might be motivated by transphobia, but but really nothing could be further from the truth. And I think, you know, that they're really, where there is a really weak evidence base underpinning a treatment and a rapid shift in both the numbers and the type of young people presenting to these gender clinics, it's important that the debate, if you like, comes out of those clinics and into society. And that's not a debate, I have to stress, about trans people or the right to transition. Like We have never questioned that, and I certainly never questioned that in the book. And, you know, I've spoken to people who are really happy with the service they received at JIDS, and they're now, you know, living as happy trans adults. But some things have gone wrong, and some people have been harmed as well. So, you know, it's not just about the trans community, it's about children. And by the sound of it, practices too. Like your book centres around this uh, gender identity service at the Tavistock. Mm. Um, it was set up in 1989. Who runs it? So, well, to start with, it was it was it was opened by a child and adolescent psychiatrist called Domenico De Celi. Um and it was very very tiny in the early years, and actually was a different hospital in London. But um, it, it sort of gradually grew. And then in the 2010s, uh, it was it was run out of the Tavistock and Portman Trust. Um, and its head from 2009 has been a, a lady called Polly Carmichael. But, you know, it's part um, the way our healthcare system is structured here. We have a, a, a number of hospital trusts, which are all part of our central national health service. So it's it's part of the national health service. Um, and that, I think, is what's surprised people is that, uh, you know, a review of this whole area of healthcare is, is, is underway at the moment. But in its interim findings, uh, the woman who's undertaken it, a very respected paediatrician called Dr. Hilary Cass, has said that 
this has not been subject to the level of oversight that we would expect when innovative treatments are... This is the gender service. Yeah, exactly, are, are, are given to children. Um, there just hasn't been the level of scrutiny that one would expect. Give us a bit of context. Uh, as you say, in 2007, this, this small era group uh, clinic was seeing about 50 children a year. Mm. And then by 2019, it was getting thousands of referrals every year. I mean, what happened? Why the increase? Do, do we know yet? I think that's the $64 million question. Um, there are lots of answers to that. I think it's really difficult to pin it on one thing. You know, that the service itself has said, you know, perhaps it's due to increased acceptance of trans people and it being easier to to, to come out, as it were. Um, and I think I have spoken to some young people for whom that, that might be the case. But I really don't think that explains the really rapid increase. Um, the clinicians that have worked in the service have, have put forward a number of hypotheses, if you like. And, and certainly this chimes with some of the young people I've spoken to as well, you know, the influence of friendships and sort of social influences. Um, many young people were very unhappy about being gay and they'd been bullied for, for, for being in same-sex relationships or, or, or being attracted to, to other uh, members of their own sex and, and didn't like that and, and, and sometimes found it easier to identify as trans. And I know that's, that's really sort of a quite difficult thing to comprehend, but, but when I heard that story over and over again, um, I think for, for the girls in particular, I mean, it's quite hard being a teenage girl. Puberty can be quite distressing. And particularly if you're not, you know, uber feminine in, in the world that we live in now, it's really, it can be difficult. And I think for, for, for many young people, some of whom told me that they were having really quite severe mental health problems just prior to their trans identification. And um, it was it was a way of understanding their unhappiness. And that's not to say that obviously um, some people, you know, obviously some people identify as trans and, and they are trans and, and will be as adults. So I think it's just a whole multitude of things really, not not one thing that explains this this rapid increase. Well, you certainly do lay it out carefully. I mean, there was a shift, this important shift in who was being referred yeah. with, because it, it was more bo young boys, wasn't it? That's right. And then the largest group are now registered as females. Exactly. Presenting for treatment in their teens between 12 and 14. Mm -hmm. Exactly, absolutely. So you had this absolute rise in the in the overall number of referrals but as you say a complete shift in the demographics if you like of the young people being referred so um the existing albeit limited evidence base tends to apply to largely birth registered males boys who have had their gender incongruence since since childhood and it's persisted whereas what gender clinics across the world have seen is a shift from those boys with lifelong gender incongruence to a preponderance of girls whose gender distress has only begun after the onset of puberty in adolescence. And often these, these teenage girls have many other difficulties that they're contending with as well. Um, depression, anxiety, perhaps eating disorders. Uh, and here in the UK, certainly some of them had, had suffered quite traumatic backgrounds as well. Um, and I think what, the, and I think this is why the concern really began, because a pretty weak evidence base to start with was then being applied to a completely different group of people for whom we really had no evidence that the medical pathway worked. And really, 
these clinicians just said, don't we need to be a bit more cautious? Autism also featured quite a bit, didn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the only data we have from that is from uh, a paper that the Gender Identity Development Service published back in 2018. And they, uh, they said that 35% of the young people they were seeing uh, exhibited moderate to severe autistic traits. So that's not quite an autism diagnosis, but it was on another measure that they were using. And it's certainly something that, you know, uh, the dozens of clinicians I've spoken to have said. Uh, I mean, and that's, that is incredibly high. If you compare that to the population level, uh, certainly here in, in, in the UK, it's around 2%. So again, it just prompted this question, do we need to think a bit more here? Is something else going on? Not it's not possible for an autistic person to be trans, of course. Of course they can be, but do we need to slow down a bit? You also say, I think, that some people um, wanted to um, transition to other ethnicities too, as well as um, different gender, which suggests just a very troubled people, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and those cases were very rare. I don't, I don't want to imply that that there were many. But but yes, in, in, in they, there were a few of those cases. And it's striking that... I'm told by, by clinicians who have gone on the record, used their names, that even in those cases where a young person not only identified as another gender but as another race or another ethnicity, those things would be treated separately and not as an, you know, so, so that the, the gender transition could continue, um, not taking into account that, as you say, perhaps this person is actually might be quite unwell if, if they're thinking that they're also another race. My guest is Hannah Barnes and she's written this very thought-provoking book called Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's gender service for children. Now, as I said, some were very young children um, and initially the clinic was providing talking talk therapy, but this changed, didn't it? And this is a very important transition, is it not? Yeah, it was. So it's important. So it did always, well, for a very long time, it did provide medical treatments, um, what we what we know colloquially as puberty blockers, but only to young people who were 16. Um, so you, you had pretty much gone through puberty by then. So, so they did that for very many years. Um, but in 2011, um, under sort of pressure from well, from, from trans groups, from endocrinologists, from, from others working in, in this field of, of gender healthcare, they embarked on a, on a research study, uh, which was the right thing to do, because they said, look, we've, we, we've got this group of small number of really, really distressed young people, and there's this treatment, puberty blockers, that we think might help. Um, you know, there's some studies coming out of the Netherlands, and they look really persuasive, but the, the data aren't conclusive and, and you know, the, there isn't very much of it. So, so we need to do a research study to see whether, you know, these, these promising findings are, are borne out. And so that's what they did, which was the right thing to do, albeit not a terribly robust study design. But then extraordinarily, rather than wait for any data or any meaningful data to come back from that study, they simply rolled out the early blocking of puberty uh, in 2014 as, as sort of a, a matter of course. And uh, the, the study, which was small, which was 44 young people aged 12 to 15, uh, then what, what JIDS did was they removed the lower age limit altogether. So providing a young person had started puberty, something called Tanner Stage 2, which is very early stages of puberty, um, they could potentially be eligible to be referred for puberty blockers. Uh, and, and within you know, a couple of years, there were 200 or so referred. And uh, as you said, 
earlier on, well over a thousand have been referred. Um, I mean, this is the striking thing. We don't actually have the data. It's not been in the public domain. But I would, from what is in the public domain, I think it's around 1,800, possibly a few more um, under 18s. But yes, to roll something out without any evidence base was was a, a remarkable decision, really. And, and, for the, and for the NHS to allow them to do it was remarkable. Did you come to any other conclusions about, you know, just the sheer pressure on the system? Or, I mean, was... <laughs> Dare I ask, was money being made from this? Um, not in the way that some have hinted, you know, like there's no, people talk about big pharma and stuff. I found absolutely, you know, no evidence of that. But but I think that's unique to our health system. The, the Tavistock Trust itself, um, the proportion of income that, that gender services brought into the trust grew quite rapidly um, um, over time from about, 2015 onwards. Now, that's not to say that there was any malice or ill intent involved, but 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 many clinicians brought up the fact that the trust was in a quite precarious financial position anyway, and to lose the income that that, that Jids brought in might have been very very difficult. And you know that came from people who spoke very favourably of the service itself, as well as those who were critical. So it, there's a, there's a sense that it, it may have allowed the leadership to be. Blinkered was the word that, that one used, but but I don't want to imply that it was, you know, sort of ruthless intent or anything like that. But in terms of pressure, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the, the failings of, of JIDS are not solely its fault. I mean, the problem in many cases was, well, they were overwhelmed by the numbers completely. But what we found and what the independent review of uh, care provided to, to gender distressed children is, is found so far here in, in, in the UK is that in so many cases, the other difficulties that these young people were experiencing were simply overlooked. Now, JIDS would say that they weren't, they weren't commissioned to, 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 to provide holistic treatment to these young people. They were a gender service and they were there to deal with the gender difficulties. And it was for other you know, more localised mental health services for young people to deal with the other stuff. But the problem was that simply didn't happen. And potentially many young people got a treatment that they they wouldn't benefit from and, and perhaps needed something else and, you know, have been let down by the adults that were meant to help them. Yes, would seem so. I mean, it is being shut this year. That's the plan. I think it's got 7,500 waiting. <laughs> what finally led to people standing up and, and taking notice? Well, that's disputed here. Um, as you can imagine, it's a very contentious area of, um, of debate. Um, but, I mean, really several things i mean we had they they were inspected by our healthcare regulator and, and found to be inadequate um both in terms of leadership and, and other factors and, and it pointed to you know a lack of record keeping um informed consent not being taken um risk not being adequately managed no proper record of how clinical decisions are made it was a really damning report and we've also had as i've, I've mentioned a few times sorry to sound like a broken record this this independent review which called for a fundamentally different model of care and it's really those two things and and i i would say that our reporting at newsnight sort of influenced both of those quite quite heavily that that have made the National Health Service say that we need a fundamentally different approach here. We need more services because it's clear that one clinic cannot serve all of England and Wales. It's crazy. So we need more. We need them closer to where these young people live. 
we need to provide more than one treatment pathway. It cannot be that, you know, while medical transition will work for some, it will not work for all. And just as there are different ways kind of into young people's gender-related distress, there's got to be different ways out of it as well. So these new services are going to be more holistic. There's going to be much more mental health support. Um, there's going to be specialists in autism and neurodiversity and in safeguarding. So the idea is, you know, one one national service cannot work, but but also the model it's used has failed. So it's, it's kind of a combination of things. Um, but as you say, more than seven and a half thousand young people waiting, waiting for years with no help whatsoever. It's, it's not a great situation by, by anyone's judgment. Look, when you decided to write this book, you initially, I understand, had some difficulties finding a publisher. Can you tell us about that, please? So I wrote a very detailed book proposal. It's about 17,000 words. Um, and it set out very clearly, you know, what, what the book would be like and what it wouldn't be like. You know, it, it, it was an evidence-based, robust, fair um, approach, just, just, as, just as I'd done at the BBC, um, you know, not, not questioning trans people. And it was really striking because it was sent to 22 publishers, um, none of whom gave a negative response at all. So, 12 responded and all were very positive and said this is a very important story um you've got to tell it but essentially not with us um and uh, you know a variety of reasons were given and 10 didn't reply at all which my my agent tells me is very very strange um so it was pretty demoralizing um and then the 23rd swift press thankfully did agree to take it on and um you know here we are but um yeah it was a it's it's strange sort of a lack of bravery in the in the publishing industry for sure it was it was shocking and i mean what are other countries doing because this has really reverberated hasn't it around the world what are, mm. what are some other key countries oh, yeah, doing absolutely. well both sweden and finland um have sort of rowed back a bit again so those physical interventions are available but but are but with far more caution and it's talking therapies that that are the first line of treatment if you like so it, it it's it, it and and you know extensive talking therapy and again sort of going back to the original principles that, that young people have to be sort of quite psychologically stable before you know commencing physical treatment france have also issued a, a note of caution over this and it's really interesting that in the three countries that have actually undertaken a systematic review of the evidence base of Sweden, Finland and, and here in England, um, they have all found it to be wanting and, and, and as a result have sort of started to proceed on a more cautious footing because we really, I think what's happened in this area of healthcare, as so many clinicians have told me, is that the word gender has kind of muddied the waters and they've proceeded on a basis where you wouldn't usually in medicine. The evidence base has, has remained quite quite weak. And even WPATH, the World Professional Association for Transgender Healthcare, which is is generally the more you know affirmative approach the, to, to fit to physical transition for, for young people, even they totally accept that the existing studies, that the, the best data we have are these two studies from the Netherlands, and actually they apply to a rather different group of young people to the majority being seen by gender clinics across the world now. So, 
you know, I think I think there is starting to be a shift. There's a big article published overnight in the British in the uh, British Medical Journal, the um, the BMJ, um, precisely talking about this. That you know, clinical disagreement over how best to care for this very diverse, often distressed young people is actually increasing. Disagreement is increasing um, because we're starting to see that it, it, it hasn't benefited some. So, so, you know, perhaps there need to be changes in approach. Very interesting. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, for putting so much effort into your work. Thank you very much, Hannah Barnes. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And Hannah's an investigative journalist with the BBC and the author of Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's gender service for children. It's published by Swift Press. Uh, in Australia, prepubescent children with gender dysphoria are treated with talking therapies. Once the child enters puberty, uh, puberty blockers may be part of their treatment. Gender reassignment surgery is generally only undertaken in adults. And if you'd like to go to the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, they have some more information on their website. And if you or your child would like more information, Kids Helpline can be reached on 1800 you can also access more information from the group Transcend, which can be found at transcend.org.au. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.